Uh, let's just jump right into the scriptures. Open your Bibles to Luke chapter 18. We're just carrying along on our series through the Gospel of Luke, uh, dealing with these stories of Jesus' power, of the Spirit working in the kingdom, and Jesus teaching us what it means uh, to be a part of that Spirit-filled kingdom. Uh, he has given us His grace and His mercy, and He is teaching us that we are free. And I'm going to start in verse 9, Luke 18, 9. Marcus said it, there are Bibles there for you. If you'd like, grab one, take one home, give one away. Luke 18, it says, and this is Jesus speaking. Jesus also told this parable. So this is in a series of parables. And it says, Jesus also told this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous. And in fact, treated others with contempt. And he tells them the story. Two men went up into the temple to pray. One a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. And the Pharisee, standing by himself, he prayed thus, God, I thank you that I am not like these other men, these extortioners, these, the unjust, the adulterers, even like this tax collector. Indeed, I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I get. But this tax collector, standing far off, would not even lift, lift up his eyes to heaven. And said he beat his breast, and saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. And Jesus says, I tell you, this man, this tax collector, went down to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. God, I pray that you would humble us this morning. I pray that we would, we would be reminded that our, our righteousness comes from you and from you alone. God, we love you, we thank you, and we pray in your name. Amen. This is, uh, and, and I'm sure many of you are familiar with this parable, this is one of the most famous parables in all the New Testament, maybe alongside the parable of uh, the prodigal son and the parable of the Good Samaritan. And I think this is partly because of the picture that Jesus paints of these two characters. These are, these are two very different characters, and it may take us a bit of time as modern readers to get this, um, but he, he presents this very jarring contrast between these two men, the Pharisee on the one hand and the tax collector, or maybe some of your versions say the publican on the other. So as, as, as modern readers, unfamiliar with the nuances of what it means to be a Pharisee or what it means to be a tax collector, I think we likely miss the joke of what Jesus is getting at here. And it is a joke, effectively. He says, two men went up to the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The comparison is something, I've used this comparison before. This comparison is something along the lines of uh, Billy Graham and Tony Soprano walked into a church. Right, that's, that's a joke, right? I mean, if we, if we heard that set up, we would know that's a joke. And we would expect, as we heard Jesus tell the story to these religious Jews, that we think we know who the hero is going to be, right? I mean, how could it not be Billy Graham, right? The, the hero is clear. The villain is clear. And yet Jesus is, uh, as we've seen throughout this series on the Gospel of Luke, Jesus is much more subtle. And his message, all the more powerful. Before we get too far, though, I want to dig a little deeper into who these guys really were. Who, who, who were the Pharisees? Who is this man? 
Some of you may remember we've talked about the Pharisees before. They come up a lot in the Gospels. Now, the Pharisees are, uh, at this time in the first century, the largest uh, Jewish religious group in Jesus' day. There's about 6,000 of them in the first century there in Jerusalem um, where Jesus is at the time. And the Pharisees are the ones who are, who are passionate about the law. They are so passionate about the law. They are devoted to the law of Moses. And, and they, they go not only to the law and embrace the law, they go beyond the law to their oral traditions and their interpretations. And they elevate those even to the power of law. So they say, I don't want to be safe. I want to be safe and make sure I'm safe and not even get anywhere close to anything that could be considered not safe. These are the Pharisees. They were regarded and certainly regarded themselves as the religious elite. That's what they were. In fact, their name, the word Pharisee, literally means separate. They were separate from everybody else. And you can even see this in this Pharisee's prayer here in this text. The, the Jewish community, they loved the Pharisees. They respected the Pharisees. The Pharisees were, they were religious. The Pharisees were serious about the law when so many other religious groups weren't serious about the law. They, even, they were so respected that even just culturally, they would be brought uh, disputes and legal matters to settle because they were so respected in the community. They were pious. They led, it seemed, at least on the outside, very exemplary lives, and yet Jesus would be very critical of these men. And it would seem that even this man is a man that people uh, honor and people uh, admire, people revere, people love, they have affection towards. The Pharisees, in general, were loved by the people. But those tax collectors, they were despised. They were utterly despised. Most of our translations actually probably say uh, they're using the word tax collector. The one I read from uses the word tax collector, maybe publican if you're using an older version. But the, the, the word is literally, technically in Greek, telones is toll collector. This is a toll collector. This was this man's job. And the way this worked in the ancient Roman Empire is that the Romans, as the government of the empire, they would decide on a road tax, Right? They would decide together on a road tax, um, and let's say, let's use, for example, 290. It's as though the national government would come and say, I'm going to create a toll tax for 290, and I want it to produce revenue for the government of at least $10,000. Okay, so that's, that's the setup here. So the Roman government, they, they look at these important trade routes and these roads, these heavily traveled areas, and they say, we need to put a tax on these roads to generate revenue. And then they would put that job, that job of toll collector, out for contract. So contractors would bid on this job. And the way it would work is that a contractor, he would know beforehand that they want to get at least $10,000 of taxes from this road. And so he would bid more than that. He would bid 12000 or he would bid 15000 or he would bid 20000 and essentially just the highest bid won, right? The Roman government said, okay, who, we can, who, who can we get the most money for? If someone's willing to, to bid $20,000, we just wanted ten, so we've already, already doubled our profit. And so that's what would happen. These contractors would compete. They would bid as much as they could to secure this job. The, the toll collector would then have to pay that $10,000, that $20,000 bid immediately to the government. Or sometimes there would be a kind of profit-sharing scenario. And then he would have to extort the people for any other profit or even to recoup his money. You see how this is working? It's a huge investment for the tax collector and a huge risk for this toll collector. But once he won the bid, he was 
sort of green-lighted. He was stamped, he was commissioned, he was licensed by the government, essentially for corruption, right? This, this system, as you can even see as I'm explaining it, this kind of system oozes with corruption, right? I mean, the governments are exploiting these toll collectors to get as much as they can possibly get, but then they are now in the position to exploit the people for as much as they get because they not only have to pay the government, recoup the money that they already paid the government, they got to actually make some profit here, right? That's the whole point. It's a classic mafia shakedown, right? The toll collectors were utterly despised. One writer in his book on uh, preaching the parables to postmoderns, he said toll collectors were among the most despised. Uh, they were even more despised than the traditional tax collectors. They operated booths along the road and did all they could to cheat people out of their earnings. And because of their visibility, they were known to most who traveled in the vicinity and deeply hated as they came to represent this entire system of oppression and corruption surrounded all over in the Middle East. They were, they were the physical picture. As you drove down the road, as you walked down the road, as you saw these people collecting this money, they came to represent how wicked and how corrupt and how evil and how broken the Roman Empire was. And you then, just a victim along the road, getting cheated. The toll collector is the, the worst kind of crook. He's, he's working for this corrupt Roman government and he's extorting money from his fellow Jews, extorting money from his fellow neighbors and just skimming as much profit off the top as he can. So, so this is the joke. Billy Graham and Tony Soprano walk into a church to pray. That's the setup. Everyone completely understood who these two men were. One was a respected religious leader. The other was a gangster. So what did they pray? They prayed this. We, we just read it. Let me read it to you again. You, you can follow along. Luke 18. The Pharisee, he stood by himself, right? He stood by himself and he prayed like this. God, thank you that I'm not like these other men. Even, even this toll collector who's standing next to me, right? I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all I get. But the toll collector, the tax collector, he stood far off. He didn't even want to lift his eyes to heaven. He, he beat his breast and he prayed all he had to pray. Be merciful to me. I'm a sinner. <clears throat> These are two very different men, right? These are two very different prayers, and these are two very different uh, approaches to God that maybe even some of us use ourselves. What do you hear in the Pharisee's prayer? You hear, you hear prejudice, right? You hear presumption against God. You see that he's saying, I, I thank you that I'm not like all these other guys, even this tax collector. The, the Pharisee, he doesn't see people as individuals, right? He's not cutting anyone any slack except for himself, He's just grouping uh, all individuals together into these subsets to be labeled and dismissed. Like these tax collectors, like, these, like these, uh, those extortionists, these other men who are here praying in the temple. And he prays as though God owes him something. You see that? What's his approach to God? His approach to God is not humbly submitting before God, giving himself over to God. His prayer is, I fast twice a week. I tie the 10% of everything I get. And there's an implied, so you better listen. 
connected to that, right? You see that arrogance. You can hear the arrogance in the way that this man prays. The Pharisee presumes against God, right? He's presuming against God. He he infers that God had better listen to him because the Pharisee had earned it. You also see it actually in his, in his tone, in his posture. You miss some of this in English, but as you read it in the original language, uh, you see that the, my version says the Pharisee standing by himself prayed thus. But the Greek literally reads, the Pharisee prayed to himself about himself. Right? He was really there for himself. He was there for show. He was talking about himself, essentially praising himself. One writer says his prayer is really, just a, uh, uh, is really just a review of his moral resume. And some of us are like this, right? That we, we approach God in a way that says, God, I've done these good things. I've lived a good life. I haven't, I haven't blown it in these certain ways. So God, I, I, you should listen to me. Why aren't you acting in this way like I want you to act? Why aren't you speaking to me in the way that I want you to speak to me? Why aren't you responding to me in the way I want you to respond? Why aren't you giving me the things that I think I deserve? Don't you see my resume? The Pharisee mentions essentially nothing of God, but just of himself. And yet the toll collector, this this toll collector... It says he, he stood far off. He didn't even want to look up to heaven. He was so humbled, and he beat his breast. God, be merciful to me. Mercy. Be merciful to me. Why would you say, be merciful to me? <clears throat> because you know you're corrupt, right? Because he has an honest assessment of himself, and he's saying, God, I know me, I know I'm broken, I know what goes on in this heart, I know what goes on in this head, I know what goes on in this body, I know me, God, I don't deserve an audience with you, God, all I can plead here is mercy. Have mercy on me, a sinner. This beating of your chest is actually very common in this time in the first century Palestine, but it was really only common among the women. It was a sign of of deep submission um, in this culture, both to the religious leaders and to God. And so what this guy is doing as he's coming in, as this this man coming in, beating his chest, this is the greatest sign of humility and of despair, right? Falling on the floor weeping. It kind of gets the picture across. Like you've got the, the, the ugly crying, right? He's on his face. He's on the floor. He says, I've got nothing, God. I just need your mercy. There's no other hope for me. Even the language that he used, again, it's, it's specific. It's a definite article. Um, he says, not just, um, God, have mercy on me, a sinner, literally says, God, have mercy on me. This is similar to what Paul says. God, have mercy on me, the sinner. Like he just, he owns it. He says, I know who I am. I know I don't deserve you to be, for you to be good to me. I know what I should get. And just to be clear, this, this wasn't an exaggeration. He was a corrupt person. He was a criminal. He was, he was a, a criminal against his own people. This is, this is Tony Soprano. This is the extortionist. No one who heard him thought he was just being sort of falsely modest. My God, I really don't deserve it. 
I know I should ask forgiveness. I know I should pray for mercy. They completely understood. He, he, they, they knew. He knew. Everyone knew. He was the worst kind of sinner. He shouldn't even be in there, right? How dare he even come into this place? Who does he think he is? And he says who he thinks he is. I'm the sinner. I'm the sinner. I know my heart. Toll collecting was, um, was reprehensible, as we've said. In fact, it was, it was essentially culturally unforgivable. Because to be forgiven uh, within the culture, you had to do two things. Number one, you had to pay back all of the money that you had collected plus one-fifth. That's a near impossibility, right? And you had to renounce your life and stop working in that industry anymore. So that's, um, it, it would mean ruin for him. Forgiveness was a virtual impossibility on his own merit. He's now incurred a debt that he cannot pay. And he knows it. I can't pay all this money. I've spent this money, right? I can't leave this job. This is the only job I know. I got nothing here. I bring nothing to the table here. I can't get out of this situation on my own. One uh, New Testament scholar, he says, what follows is no part of the usual attitude in prayer. This is an outburst of despair. The man beats his chest, wholly forgetting where he is. He's overwhelmed by the bitter sense of his distance from God. You hear that, church? He is overwhelmed by the bitter sense of his distance from God. He and his family are in a hopeless position, right? Utterly hopeless. He's, got no, he's not, got no options. Since repentance involves not only the abandonment of the sinful way of life, but the restitution of all of his fraudulent gains. Don't you see here, and this is important, as you read the story, both of these men had faith. You see that? Both of these men had a very serious faith. They were both clinging very tightly to something for salvation, right? But the Pharisee, he had faith in his own righteousness. He had faith in his behavior. He looked at his resume and thought, I'm a pretty good guy. I deserve this. He was clinging to his performance, his fasting and his tithing and whatever else. The toll collector, he had no faith in himself whatsoever. He knew exactly who he was. He clung only to God's mercy. That would be the only thing that would get him out of this sinking ship. His faith was utterly and completely turned away from himself and turned towards God. If you were here last week, Marcus talked about, uh, about faith and what that means and what that looks like. And that's what we're dealing with here. It's this, the faith that both of these men had. What, what was the object of their faith? One quote, and I'll have this on the screen here by Ronald Wallace. This is a great way to think about faith. Faith, faith is the attitude that looks entirely away from the worst and the best that is in man to God alone. And consider both of those ends. Faith, faith is the attitude that looks entirely away from the worst and best that is in man to God alone. It is the act whereby a man, inspired by what he sees in God's mercy, finding nothing in his own character or his own feelings or of his own intellect to give him any rest or comfort, 
He lets go of that last shred of what he has hitherto held on to for himself, and he commits his whole being to God. Faith, faith is understanding. It's, it's looking away from the best that is in you and the worst that is in you, and it's not looking at yourself at all. It's looking directly, entirely to God for your hope. Because some of you, some of you think you deserve it, and some of you think you're too far gone. Some of you think you don't have any idea what I've done, what I've been through. And some of you think, I'm good to go. I'm fine. How did Jesus respond to these men? He says, I'll tell you, this, this toll collector, he went down to his house justified rather than the other one. For whoever exalts himself will be humbled. The one who humbles himself will be exalted. And this is, this is where the crowd would have likely gone silent because they, they understood the joke in the setup. They understood the, the Billy Graham, Tony Soprano uh, contrast. But then now here he's saying, uh, it's, it's, it's Tony Soprano who went away justified, not Billy Graham. And what? They wouldn't have known what to, how, what to do with that. They would, have, they would have maybe gone silent. They would have, maybe some would have felt ashamed because they had already picked sides in the midst of this parable, maybe even vocally. Some would have likely felt anger towards Jesus. Some likely just walked away. This is hard news for us to hear, isn't it, church? This is hard news for many of us to hear, but it's the good news that we need. This is what we need to be reminded of. The, the Pharisee is so like the best of us, isn't he? You guys are good church folk, right? Here you are on Sunday morning. You could have been doing a lot of other things. So give yourself a pat on the back. You guys earned it. Good for you. But we know. You know your heart. You know your head. You know your prejudices. You know your pride. You know your anger. This is hard news for us. We all work very hard at justifying ourselves. But it's never enough, right? It's never enough. We're never good enough. We're never kind enough. We're never generous enough. We're never moral enough. And yet there's still hope. The toll collector, the sinner, was justified because he knew he couldn't justify himself. That's the key. All right? The way that we are justified is by a confession that we can't justify ourselves and we look to the one, we fall down at the one, we beg the only one who can justify us to make us right with God. That's our only hope. This question is, is, is critical for us. How is a person justified before God? Martin Luther said that justification is the chief article of the Christian faith. John Calvin says that, that, that justification is the hinge on which all of religion turns. Like if you get one thing right, get this right. How you can be made good according to God. Like theology is important, doctrine's important, tradition is important, but justification, it's the hinge. It's the hinge. You've got to get it right. Justification very simply means being made right with God. We know that things are wrong in this world. I don't have to tell you that. 
You could turn on the news or your radio or the computer or Facebook for five seconds and you see things are, things are wrong in this world. And if you could be honest with yourself for five seconds, you could say things are not right in here. Not, not just me. If it's just me, if it's just my ability, if it's just the righteousness I've mustered on my own, it's not enough. And he says, God, be, be merciful. What's the answer? What won him the prize? God, be merciful to me. The sinner. What justifies a person before God is only God's mercy. His mercy. Don't you need it this morning? I do. Even while I was away, one of the verses that I kept coming back to, um, and Casey and I spoke at a church a few weeks ago, and I, I, I talked about this, but, you know, growing up in church, you hear verses like this, and you just kind of say, yeah, yeah, it's good. Um, that verse that his mercies are new every morning. Take, take just a minute to consider that truth. His mercies are new for you every morning. What you did last night, what you did last week, what you thought on your way over here. His, his mercy for you, His mercy for me, is new. It's brand new every morning. Faith is looking entirely away from yourself. It's not the good stuff. It's not the bad stuff. It's not what you think you've earned. It's not what think ex- you, th- you think excludes you. It's looking exclusively to God. So where is your faith this morning, church? That's what I'm asking. Where is your faith? Is it in your own faithfulness? Is it in your own behavior? Your own moral resume? Even in your own character? Or is it in Christ's faithfulness? How are you trying to make yourself right with God? A lot of us try really hard. It's interesting, over, over one-fourth, this is a staggering statistic. Over one-fourth of born-again evangelicals, okay? Over one-fourth of born-again evangelicals surveyed, this is according to the Barna Group, agreed with this statement. If a person is good and does enough good things for others, they earn a place in heaven. Over a fourth agreed with that statement. If I'm just good enough, if I do, if my good deeds at the end outweigh my bad deeds, I have, quote, earned my pl- myself a place in heaven. I just, if, if the, the message is be, be sincere, be a good person, be loving, be accepting, live a good life, do good things, that will be enough for you. And it's not. Some of us know that because we've been trying a long time to just do good things and we still have this ache in our souls because we know what we really need is not one more good deed, it's mercy. It's mercy. Some of us think we're all right. Some of us think that we're well-behaved, we're well-mannered, we're generally moral, successful. We deserve an audience with God. Look at what I've done. Look at who I am. If for no other reason than just to plead our case before God, right? We want to tell them about how good we are. But then there are others in this room, and I know this to be true. There are others in this room um, 
We know we're not okay. We do bad things. We think bad things. We want bad things. And the prospect of an audience with God is terrifying. We think we've missed it. We think we don't deserve it. We're not self-righteous. We're self-disgusted. We think there's no way for us. We've, we, our debt is too big. There's no way I'm getting out from under this. God, be merciful to me. Be merciful to me. I need your mercy. No, no matter your method, you cannot make yourself right before God. It can't be done. And no matter your method, church, you can't hide yourself away from God's mercy if you look to Christ. Tom Schreiner, a New Testament scholar, he says this. I think I have it on the screen. Justification, really simply, justification is equals faith in Christ. I may have it on the screen. Justification is faith in Christ plus nothing. Being made right with Christ is faith in him, trust in him, and nothing else. Often you talk about uh, C.S. Lewis's screw tape letters, and you remember that story, sort of one devil mentoring this younger devil, uh, sort of satirical, and this older devil, he's saying, look, we don't have to take Christ out of the situation. We don't have to take Christ out of, out of, the, out of the context. All we have to do, teaching this young, up-and-coming demon, is just get them to believe in Christ and Christ and something. Christ and their good behavior. Christ and their moral resume. Christ and their goodness. That's the trick enough. But justification is faith in Christ plus nothing. It's not Jesus plus sincerity. It's not Jesus plus behavior. It's not Jesus plus being free from your doubts. It's not Jesus plus anything. Let me close with this quote. This is from uh, Francis uh, Turretin, 17th century theologian. He says this, a little long, but bear with me. But when we rise to the heavenly tribunal, when we're there before God, when we place our eyes on that supreme judge by whose brightness the stars are darkened, at whose strength the mountains melt, by whose anger the earth is shaken, whose justice not even the angels are equal to bear, who does not make the guilty innocent, whose vengeance when once kindled penetrates even to the lowest depths of hell in an instant. That vain confidence that we have perishes and falls and our conscience is compelled to confess our sin, to confess that we have nothing, that we can rely only on God. Our soul cries out like David, Lord, if you marked my iniquity, who could stand? God, if you dealt fairly with me, I don't have a chance. He says, when the mind is thoroughly terrified with the consciousness of sin and a sense of God's wrath, what is that thing on account of which he may be acquitted before God? What's going to make him right in that moment? How can he be reckoned a righteous person? Is it the righteousness that he has mustered? Or the righteousness and obedience of Christ alone? What are you clinging to this morning? Do you have that vision of that supreme judge? All you need on the scale, 
No matter what bad things you have on the one side, no matter what good things you have on one side, all that needs to be there is the mercy of God for you. And it's new every morning. 